The Science Show on RN, where we continue looking at those young minds. Dr Terry Apter is a psychologist and tutor at Newnham College in Cambridge, and her latest research is on the myths surrounding our assumptions about those wicked teenagers. Well, the first myth is that teens are bound to be rude and unruly and that they have no respect for their parents. And overarching here is the theory that what they're trying to do is separate from a parent. So Anna Freud said that the task of adolescence was to achieve a psychological version of parent-child divorce. And this was developed later on by psychologists saying that teens were trying to remove in their minds and in their hearts the love and admiration they had for parents as a child. As a child, of course, a parent is twice or three times their natural size. Teens wanted to reject this, cast it out, and only when they did that would they be functioning mature adults. And I think this is a myth for all sorts of reasons. It's a myth that is based on the idea that in order to be a mature, healthy adult, we have to be independent, separate from other people, standing on our own two feet, not caring about what other people think. But in fact, we're born into relationships in which we're dependent on love and care. And we remain with this dependence, which isn't a weakness, it's a fact of human interaction. And so that's a myth of adolescence that also is embedded in a much broader myth about what people are, and in particular, what healthy adults are. By the way, may I ask you, has there been much scientific evidence about the fact that it is a myth? Well, this is very interesting because Anna Freud, like her father, was very theoretical. So the myth grew up in psychoanalytic theory, which takes some evidence. I mean, it will say, yes, of course, we're evidence-based. Just look at how teens behave. They argue with their parents. Parents find them difficult to control. They're risk-takers. They want to think for themselves. So this is all evidence for my theory. But much later on, when you actually ask teens what they thought about their parents and how they responded to their parents, it was found that indeed teens remained very attached to their parents, were much more in keeping with parental ideas and beliefs than the myth holds, and you know, wanted to remain connected with their parents. So that body of evidence was very much against that myth, but it had already leached into society in such a way that a lot of parents still today will say, my teen is going to be awful, my teen is going to hate me, and I just have to weather it, and there's no talking to a teen. In other words, don't panic. Of course, don't panic. So panic is a good word because... What that myth does, that they're trying to achieve a divorce, does set off an alarm, not only because, my gosh, I'll have no influence on my teen, and if my teen wants to wreck his or her life, they will, 
and I can't do anything about it. But it's also a panic in the sense that here is a relationship I value enormously and I'm losing it. I'm being rejected. So I would say don't panic in that way. And also the panicking, the assumption that my teen is rejecting me when my teen says you don't understand me and you're saying the wrong thing and there's no point in talking to you, the teen is not saying I want to reject you. If the parent hears that, then the conflict is much more likely to escalate. This is what I found in my research on teen-parent interactions. What a teen is actually trying to do is say to the parent, you're a really slow learner. I'm changing rapidly and you're not keeping up. You think I'm still the little child you think you know and I'm really very different. Of course, it doesn't help that the teen themselves doesn't know for sure what they are, who they are now and who they want to become, but they certainly know that they're not the little child that the parent thinks they know, and they want the parent to engage with them with that kind of eager curiosity and close observation that parents give to very young children when they say, oh, I love you and you're wonderful, and I want to know who you are. Tell me who you are. You know, the excitement of discovery. Parents do not tend to do that with teens. It's a weariness mm -hmm. and a wariness, and that really disturbs would otherwise be a close relationship and one that is working towards revitalization rather than separation. Now, it just so happens that many people believe, and I would include myself, that these days in societies such as in Australia and possibly in Britain, young men are falling way behind young women in achievement and various other things. Is this another myth? It's a concern. That isn't a myth. It's a generalization. And I think it's important to see where it holds and where it doesn't hold. Now, if you look at mental health and resilience, the greatest vulnerability that boys show over a lifespan or over youth is in very early childhood, around the age of four or five or six. That's when they tend to feel the most stress and most likely to have signs of mental disturbance. Whereas for girls, it's early adolescence. And the most convincing explanation for this, and it is a theory, it's difficult, there are so many variances that it's difficult to say exactly what's going on, but the, the most convincing theory is that in very young childhood, boys are subject to the guy code, to a lot of policing of gender norms. You're not supposed to be too much of a mommy's boy, you're not supposed to cry, and this destabilizes them and, you know, makes them feel, where am I? Who do I have? Whereas girls, for all the concern there is about the toys they have, the pink Barbies, really today, there's a benign neglect about gender for girls in early childhood. After all, you know, girls can dress like boys, they can be tomboys, and if they play with trains, or cars or whatever, that's lauded, you know, wow, she's feisty and that's a good direction. Whereas if a boy is playing with a baby or wants to wear ribbons in his hair or wear a skirt to school, parents, even though they may themselves think 
that's fine. They want to protect the son from the ridicule they anticipate he would receive if he were to behave like that, dress like that at school. So they police him more. But when they enter adolescence, Girls are subject to much more control. Their brothers are given more freedom to walk the streets. They're seen as possible targets, more vulnerable. So they're under stricter controls. Certain things they could wear in the house, you're told to cover up. They could sit on granddad's lap and cuddle him, not for a 13-year-old. So there's that to factor in and set against the generalization that you've just given about differential in achievement or maybe in maturity. So yes, there's something in that. Girls are better at sitting down and working and doing that kind of work that allows them to do well in school at that age. Boys are still restless. Sitting down is more difficult for them, so they don't get along with that. Also, their friendship groups tend to be less open in terms of whoever you are, I love you, which is what supposedly happens and happens sometimes in girls' friendships. But boys are more keen to fit in. And if they are in a group that is not high achieving, no one of them wants to step up and step out and be different and be the one who works and the one who is a high achiever. So if you're already in unhealthy gender environment in which working hard and pleasing others is not cool, then the boys are more likely to feel safer by not complying with that norm, and that will keep them back. And that is something we really have to address. I want to ask you a lateral question, and it's to do with the fact that many boys can be malleable given a certain leadership. Now, I'm looking at the Russian army, where you can have hundreds of thousands of young men made to do things which are beyond belief horrible. And is there something in the male makeup that makes them ready to follow a leader, whatever that leader might say? Well, I think one thing we have to ask when you describe what is happening to soldiers not only Russian soldiers, but probably Ukrainian ones as well, is what's the cost, what's the follow-on? And we know that the follow-on is devastating, that post-combat there are lots of suicides, there's lots of trauma, very difficult to get back into ordinary life. They've learned a set of skills that allows them to function in high danger, high stress, life and death conditions. And that set of skills does not help them when they're back in ordinary life. They also learn to depend on one another, and that's a very important feature of their ability to learn to do those awful things. They learn in a group, they learn how to cover for one another and protect one another. And it's a very strong sense of whatever I do for this group is fine and I can do anything I like against anyone who's outside it. And so post-combat, you get an awful lot of suffering and discomfort. Now, I don't know whether we've tested girls in the same way. There are countries in which girls have gone into combat. I mean, Israel for a while tried this. They then 
saw that this wasn't working, not because the women weren't stepping up, but because the men were more protective towards the women, and that dynamic didn't work for combat. So that disrupted men's idea of what it was to be a good soldier. So we don't yet know, and uh, be nice if we never did. <laughs> I mean, it would be nice if we never subjected yet more people to the awful training that young men are now being given in war. But even when they can do it, and they're malleable in that sense, their humanity is not malleable. So being like that carries a great lifelong cost. Which brings me to the final question. If we are interested in regaining a civil society instead of the fractured one we have in many ways these days, what is the lesson about the treatment of these teens that comes out of your latest book? Well, I think teens, first of all, they have to be listened to. They have to be responded to with curiosity and warmth. And this will really give them much greater skills in understanding themselves and others. Now that sort of sounds like wishful magic, but it said there are three R's of adolescence. There's the reward system, which as we know for teens, you know, needs sort of excitement and is risk-taking. There's the regulation system in which they're able or not to regulate their feelings, not to be flooded by social anxiety and not to be too impetuous. And then there's a relationship system in which they're relating with other people and understanding themselves and others in that context. And the relationship system has been shown to help with the regulation system and the reward system so that teens who have good responsive in-sync relationships, either with friends but you know, primarily with parents, are much more able to tolerate the differences in other people, to find the similarities, to control themselves and to welcome more people into their fold. So it's achievable. It is achievable. We're not starting from a good place. Dr Terry Apter at Newnham College in Cambridge. Her latest book is The Teen Interpreter. And one definite I can offer about teens is that they need more sleep in the morning and should start school at 10am, not 9